So let me just uh, start with a couple of things. One is uh, that uh, Carrie and uh, Narayan are off tonight. They would prefer to not have their questions directed towards them. So uh, if you have questions, then I'll, I'll receive them and do the best I can with them. The other thing is that I'm trying to make this uh, into a recording. So if you could have your th th questions thought out and be very succinct so that I can repeat them back <clears throat> and uh, for the value of the tape, that would be helpful. Uh, usually I have some kind of a preamble that I, that I uh, begin the question and answer period with, but nothing really comes to me uh, urgently to say. Uh, so I will just open it up to whomever would like to ask a question, and we'll go from there. So anyone? Yes, sir. I, um, when you mentioned the um, analogy about the motorcycle driving by, it was very helpful to me. Um, my question is, how do you apply that to something that cuts more to the bone? You know, something that is more, you know, like my wife nagging me about the bills for the hundredth time that day or something like that. <laughs> Is there another question? We have? <laughs> so uh, the question is um, the formula for listening and uh, hearing what the ear hears as opposed to what the mind applies to what the ear hears. How can that formula be applied to a more active style of life uh, when uh, domestic situations erupt into reactions, etc., like that? I think it's real important to get this formula down. You know, uh, when you first um, entered school, they gave you very basic uh, training. Uh, I'm thinking of arithmetic. You know, before you, they didn't enter the complications, they sort of graduated you into that throughout your schooling. And it's, it's important because if we lose the fundamentals of how this system works, when it gets uh, uh, excitable or when there is a lot of rancor going on, a lot of reactivity, we won't have any sense of where to go with it. Uh, the formula for uh, suffering is really the one I suggested when we have a noxious sound like a motorcycle or like somebody fidgeting next to us. And if you can just hear what the ear hears, the ear doesn't hear, it doesn't hear unpleasantness even. It hears whatever the shuffling around noise is. The first reactive response we have is that it's unpleasant. And from there, we have a whole story about why this person shouldn't be moving. And it comes in to justify the feeling of unpleasantness. We aren't able, most of us, to just stabilize with that unpleasantness and just be OK that it's an unpleasant sound. We have to add something. And it's usually a righteous indignation, some way that we pit ourselves against the sound and have an opinion and judgment around the sound. And that's what stirs the whole mess. Uh, the sound itself didn't communicate that procedure, that overlay. It was the mind that did that. 
Now let's just go to a different sensation so we see that it's also applicable to other forms of suffering. Let's take physical suffering like you're sitting in your knee hurts. There's the physical sensation of that. And then there is the hyperbole, the fear response that we have when we when this uh, particular pain starts increasing. It's again unpleasant. And we start uh, speaking about the unpleasantness in terms of fear. Oh, this is going to get worse. I know I've been through a hundred sittings. I know that if it's like this in the beginning, it's going to be miserable in the end. And, and it's that old uh, football injury I had. And it's just, I, I don't know, maybe I should have it all amputated. <laughs> <laughs> and, and nobody will like me then because I won't have that. Yeah, but with each ne- with each next indicator being met, you know, uh, unpleasant, terrible, awful, each intensity ri- rise in intensity, uh, the fear is increasing, and the resistance to it increases, and the whole thing explodes in a cacophony of sound, and and that is the suffering. That is the suffering. Now you know. A very sane approach to that is when the and when the knee hurts, you sense whether there is um, whether it's the the kind of hurt that uh, could cause damage if you remained in that posture, or whether it just felt you know sore, and uh, and I can stay with it or not. And there's nothing uh, wrong with just moving the leg if you're unsure, rubbing it, starting again. It's fine. It's like that. But to try to get the formula down so that there is a stimulation, an unpleasant stimulation, and then a whole emotional and psychological reaction to that stimulation that ties in a whole story of our life around it. And once we're embedded in an opposition to what it is that's occurring in the reality of the moment, then we're going to be, uh, there's going to be a lot of abrasion between the two. Okay, so that moment after moment after moment after moment, we can see that that's occurring. Something, my back is hurting, my shoulders, you know, somebody's making some noise. This meditation isn't going the way the last one did over and over again throughout the day. Just keep applying that formula. Okay, so stop, just be quiet with it. You know, you don't need to, let me, and if, and if you can't, then let me go to the emotion that's being aroused within it. Let me be with the emotion and watch how the emotion feeds more thought and how the thought feeds upon the emotion and watch that. So then when uh, we go out into a more interactive time, there'll be a way in which a slow, it's often slow progression of being able to apply that formula to different events in our life. For instance, I have a friend who um, uh, was driving her children to school she also had an appointment to go to. Uh, she was she's a well-practiced uh, person, and she was stuck in traffic. She was going to be late for her appointment, late for the kids to get to school. The kids were arguing in the back there, and she was turning around to, to have them settle down when she realized that this was never going to end. You see, at the point where she acknowledged that it was never going to end. It ended in her. 
And then she could turn around and be very content with this being stuck in traffic. But if there's some way that it doesn't end in her, and she continues to add verbiage, continues to add a disagreement and argument to the kids and this, and this is hot and ah, uh, what's going on, then it just gets out of control, completely out of control. Now that latter response is not an adaptation. What we usually do is we try to adapt to the situation. Okay, so let me just listen to them, this person rustling next to me. I don't like it. I wish they would shut up, but I'm a good yogi. <laughs> and I'll sort of sit on my hands and not wring her neck. So, okay, you know, so I'm trying to adapt it and I'm, I'm trying to be equanimous to it and all this stuff. But we have to be driven almost insane before we come to the moment of which, in which we surrender. Well, you see, there's no other outlet. There's no other thing you can do to quiet this down, to make it all right. Then you don't do anything. And when you refuse to do anything, the, the argument ceases. And when the argument ceases, it's done with. You see? And now that... It usually takes a while for somebody to move from an adaptive response, which they're applying different techniques. I'll send her meta, you know, and may you be happy as I wring your neck. <laughs> so we're doing the best we can, you know, it's, it, and, uh, and and we just keep trying to just keep trying to juggle it around so that it feels a little better in us because we're not completely surrendered to the unpleasantness. We're trying to adapt to the unpleasant and make it, you know, just not quite as unpleasant or get over the unpleasantness or whatever it might be. But there's really nothing you can add to life. It's coming at you. This is it. This is the form it's taking. There's no argument to that form. If you argue, argue against what reality is bringing in, is, I mean, what, how are you going to win that? There really is never, you can't win it. And so at some point you realize that and you shut up. And then you, you change in accordance to reality rather than demanding something upon it. This is a situation. Right? And so that's... It's usually incremental, as I mentioned. You get the formula down, you try to ad- apply adaptive responses, you make all the adjustments you can, you apply different techniques, skillful means, you go through all of that until you can get to the fact that what really needs to happen is for you to be quiet. But see, the reason we don't go immediately there is because that's the most, in disemp- that's the most disempowering strategy we have. It's not even a strategy. It's the end of strategies. Because now I have nothing to offer the moment. I have no, there's no me in it. As long as I was fighting it, I could at least be noble in my, in my argument, you know. And certainly the righteousness helped because I feel like I'm better than this person moving next to me. And none of that works. It's still the face of reality, moment after moment. Take the individual out of it. And, it's, and being disempowered is the, the egoic sense of ourselves hates that feeling. That's the most loathed feeling we have. Complete disempowerment. 
So we'll keep coming up with a new strategy so we can assert that new strategy upon the reality that needs to be fixed. You see how it works? And then all of a sudden you go, Mm-mm. And you diminish the degree of surrender is proportional to your own diminishment. And then there's just reality. And there's this beautifully, beautiful harmony that then moves. It's like yin and yang. Right? That beautiful harmonic resonance where life is coming in, but there's just, in fact, in that state of existence that I've been talking about, there is no pleasant or unpleasant. And that's not, the conditioned response is not there. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Be very concise, because I have to repeat this. Okay. You can tell if you know the story about the famous warrior who comes into a town and says, I could kill yeah, you. Yeah, right. And the monk says, you know. Right. So, the, but the present day techniques of working that are not necessarily adaptive, that are part of the Theravada tradition, or your experience. That aren't adaptive? Well, you were talking about using skillful means. That's what, those are adaptive strategies. Yes. The techniques that are emphasizing present moment. Well, there's no technique that emphasizes present moment. Or practice. Okay, well, practice. So uh, you just let me to tell, talk a little bit about skillful means. Is that right? Okay. Well, skillful means is extraordinarily important. It's just that I think within our tradition, it is my opinion that we put too much emphasis on skillful means. And what happens is that uh, when there's a lot of emphasis on skillful means, it becomes a kind of way of life. The practice becomes the ends somehow. You know, you can do this and that. You become very, you become, it becomes very rich in how you use different techniques to counter different influences. And what is forgotten in all of that is it, what a skillful means is meant to do is to kind of balance the equation of the moment enough so that it can be completely released to be what it is. And sometimes it's too troubling or sometimes too fearful or sometimes too, I'm too angry to do that immediately. So applying a skillful means sort of evens the tone of the moment sufficient so that I am able to release the moment to be what it is. Now, again, I know many practitioners who practice for the sake of practicing, not for the sake of release. And it gets to be 
comfortable. You get there can be it can become a kind of self-sustaining method. I'm a meditator. It has an identity. It has a duration. It has a prominence. How many courses have you done? It has a length, you know, the long time. I've been doing this 20 years. And I mean, there's a certain way that that builds upon myself in respect to what I'm doing. And yet, there may not be any release in the sight of that person, that practitioner. They're just, in fact, I see many yogis of long standing, very experienced yogis who, you know, something will happen, a siren will go by, and you can just feel the cringe of them, or somebody's coughing and they're going like, like that, kind of flinching over their shoulder, or, or you speak to them in an interview and they're talking about how difficult their emotion. I mean, I, I, you really wonder what they've been doing for 20 years and dealing with these things, because it's about release, it's about fluidity, it's about moving with circumstances not creating kind of an isolation of territory and inward peace in which anything that intrudes upon that is a violation to my dominion. You know, this, this is really, each one of us needs to shake ourselves once in a while and say how much release, how much true freedom, how much true relaxation and ease is there in my life? Or am I practicing Dharma for the sake of being a practitioner? And I say that to all of us because all of us can get caught in that from time to time. We all know the techniques, you know, even the techniques we offer each morning in terms of how to practice. Staying with the breath, watching something, and then moving uh, into a, a more continuous or a uniform flow of mind and back to, you know, all of that. All of that is just technique-ish. It's not, it's not the fruit. It's the method we're applying to get to the fruit. The fruit is the release. It's the w- woman in the car turning and saying, this life will never change. This moment will never change. That's the release. But we're very stubborn. You see, that's what I had mentioned early on, that... Uh, Westerners, in particular, they, when they get pushed to a certain level of, of discomfort, they have a threshold. I, I'm not going there. I have more rights than that. You, know, you can't push me to that level of discomfort. You know, it's not fair. Then it becomes an issue of fairness. right? And so we, we have a very narrow corridor of that because we're, affluent, we're an affluent culture. But if you go off to the east, there's a much deeper sense of, of surrender because they don't live under the same degree of comforts that we do. And, and, and our need for comfort really sets up an antagonism worldwide because the level and degree and, and percentage of what it takes to feed our comforts is disproportionate to what the rest of the world gets resource-wise. We can't sustain it. But boy, you, I mean, that, if you want to fight in yourself or with your neighbor or in Congress, <laughs> talk about levels, shifting levels of comfort. Right? 
so this is what we're doing here, is that we are in some sense shifting our level, the small narrow corridor of our comfort. We're, we're opening this thing up so that we can move with the situation, with, with what's coming, rather than the self-demands. Well, this isn't acceptable, I'm sorry. Well, it is acceptable because it's happening. It better be acceptable. There's not another reality that's going to come up here. This is it. And also our degree of denial. Extraordinary culture of denial. In a hundred years, much of Florida will be flooded, right? Boston will be underwater, so will most of New York City. <laughs> Come to Seattle, dear. I know. <laughs> you know, I, being able to say, oh, yeah, I see this. I want to see this. That's it. I want to understand this. You see, each time you do that, you're. Let me just be willing to look. I'm willing to look at this. I'm willing to look at that. I'm willing to look. I'm willing to see. Why am I so, the question, why am I so narrowly focused on my comfort level? Because that's, it's always around me. What I can endure and what I can't. This thing won't ever open up as long as we have that kind of tight, wrenching control. So I have no idea if I answered the question, but it's... <laughs> yes? My question is one of <clears throat> re-entry. Uh, first of all, I, I am leaving tomorrow with many gifts from all of you. I'm deeply grateful. Thank you. Um, my husband was very supportive and loving about this retreat for me this week. Um, however, when I was sitting here this week, there were several times, I'm not going to lie, when I thought, I wish he were here to hear you say that or you say that. That would be good for him. <laughs> so I, I, it's not cool for me to go home and say, honey, you know, you should... Here are the tapes. <laughs> yeah. How I bring myself home. Right, how do I bring myself home when I want my spouse to... I have heard many of the messages that would correct some of his... <laughs> okay, so, uh, I mean, uh, you have to be careful that there isn't a subliminal strategy that we're applying, you know, to try to change you. There's only one way... There's really only one way that growth occurs, and that's to leave the person alone. If they feel any weight of your neediness, they take that as that there's something wrong with them that needs to be changed. That's not how you grow. You don't grow from that vantage point of being pressured into it. You grow because you see the limitation, because you're willing to look at the limitation that you have lived with, and you say, I don't want to live with this anymore. And then through that investigation and understanding, you expand your horizons. That's how growth occurs. Growth occurs from the person, not from pressure on the person. 
And so many of us, especially spouses that are, you know, every one of us have disagreeing areas with our partner. Uh, and yet the only way this really works is to, that person is not going to change. There's another car example in traffic. This person is not going to change. Now, can I live with that or not? Because if I can't live with it, I'm going to nag him until it's obvious we can't live together. But if I can live with that, then he gets the message that he's fine, and he will see then where he needs to look at the rubs in his own life. As an example of that, oftentimes when there is one spouse who sits and the other spouse who doesn't, the the non-sitter often encourages the sitter after they see the value of sitting on that sitter to go off on a retreat. (laughs) Because it's a relief to have them come back and be nicer to them. (laughs) That's how it works, you know. Don't you think you should sit, dear? Because after that, there is a lightening of the pressure that there's something wrong with me. And we put each other under that pressure. I mean, with the last thing, you see, it's, it's like the, the, la- the last vestige of strength is that, you know, I can't live with you like this. Well, then leave. Because it's better for you to leave than to anyone to be endured, to have to endure that kind of torment day after day after day. The message you give them is the message that most of us live, him or her, the message that most of us have lived with our entire life, that there's something wrong with you. And we get that message from every avenue. We get it from commercials that says, if you had had it together, you would own this. But you don't, so there's something wrong with you. We get it from school. We get it from our comparison and judgment and grades and all of that. And so no wonder we are really a a cacophony of judgment. So, okay, so that, okay, so I'm not going to bring that to my relationship. That doesn't mean that there aren't ways that you engage conversation around areas of tension. I'm not denying that that's useful and helpful and really essential to any relationship. You just don't carry, you know, a, a quid pro quo. You either change or I'm going to... You know, like... There's reasons that each people, person acts the way they do. And if you enter the logic of that person, it makes complete sense that they did that. But then the person who was adversely affected by whatever you just did has a complete story that shows why it's perfectly appropriate for them to have responded to whatever you did. So you have these two complete logical systems bashing into each other. Neither one can you compromise or or have any access to because they're all complete messages in the emotional history of our lives. Well, my father did this, and by God, I'm not going to live with another person, another male like him. Honey, I was just stepping in the... (laughs) (laughs) 
Think what our relationship would be like with our parents if we, that is the way they are now and that's the way they're going to die. Now, do you want to be a child of that or do you want to stay away from that? But they are not going to change. They're not going to change. (laughs) Over the holidays, if you gather, remember the woman with her children. This will be forever. And mean it. Yes. First, thank everybody for your presence, for your teachings, and for your wisdom. And my question, please, is, is the self in the brain or the body? Is the self in the brain or the body? Well, I don't really make that much of a distinction between the brain and the body, to be honest. So uh, that's the first place where I... See, we have created kind of boundaries where we have placed ourselves. And uh, the first boundary we shut off from is the body and the brain. We think, you know, I'm up here in the brain, and the body I sort of own, but it's not exa- I could lose an arm and still be okay, right? So it's not really there. It's mine, it's me, in the greatest sense of that, but it's not where I reside. So now we have a fraction we have further boundaries that we impose upon ourselves in the mind. Certain qualities that are arising in the mind we enjoy about ourselves. Other qualities we project outward and disassociate ourselves from uh, and detach from. And those are the shadowy areas in ourselves. So we disown our, the shadowy areas and reside in the place where we're most comfortable, those states of mind in which we have identified. And so we keep packaging ourselves in smaller and smaller areas, right? The unpackaging of that, the unpackaging, the releasing of that, is the releasing of the boundaries that have separated us. So the first thing is that I start honoring those parts of myself which I've hated to hold, because they're there, and they come up frequently, and every time they do, I react to them. And when I see them in someone else, I react in exactly the same way to that other person because they're still in me and I hate them. Okay, so we start bringing the shadow together in here, just through acceptance, allowance, just through that. And then there's this sense of brain and body. And as you begin to relax the issue of where the self resides, it all feels alive equally. And it's hard to say, in fact, when the Buddha was asked where does his spiritual self reside, he pointed mostly to his heart area. So it's, it's not obvious. Now there's another level of transcendence of boundary, and that's inside to outside. We think, okay, I'm, okay I'll give the fact that I could be up here somewhere and maybe not up there in the way I think, and maybe the body I've cut off my way out of, but I certainly know that I'm not external, I'm internal. The skin is the dividing point between them. Now, if you were to take a moment and shut your eyes and really feel your hand uh, to what the reality of that sense of hand is, 
you would find that it doesn't have exact boundaries. In fact, it isn't, doesn't in any way take the shape of what your visions, your vision, the perceptual vision of it takes. And so we can be like this, and then immediately when we look, oh yeah, that's the hand. Well, what about the other? What was the other? You see, so you begins the boundaries begin to get permeable from this. And the sense, along with that, comes the, the sense of, of who I am expands beyond what we have known ourselves to be. Okay? So that just, that just keeps moving out. The problem is that people still put, they just make it a small s and they change it to a capital S. Because as the consciousness begins to feel more universal, they still claim a subtle sense of self within that boundary. They call it the big self, who I really am. And that is a slight self-consciousness within the universal consciousness. That slight sense of still being in the picture, having the experience of. Okay? So that's, there's still some uh, film of self that is associated with consciousness, as long as we have uh, experience at hand, there will always be a sense of someone having that experience. You can't have an experience and not have a very slight form of duality within that experience. Someone receiving it, someone... So that's not the end of Buddhism. In fact, Buddha was very clear that the cosmic consciousness that anyone was proclaiming at that time was not the nirvana he was speaking about. Right? So then what is? Well, this can't be spoken about, but it can be sensed. Is when there is no longer an acclamation or an affirmation, an affirmation towards any sense of self-consciousness, no matter how large, no matter how broad, no matter how expansive, universal or otherwise. So there's no reaching or pointing or positioning or anything. There comes a sense of something that is untouched, that is not experiential that is behind each and every experience, giving birth to each and every experience. A darkness, a dazzledness, a wonder, a potentiality. People call it from a different, that is giving rise to all experiences. And as one is even with, with every inch of one's ability to surrender, to live, to abide, the Buddha said, incline your mind toward the deathless. That begins to have its own effect upon the nature of the body, the mind, and consciousness itself. Yes. So I can tell that you care about climate change. About what? Climate change. Yes.
change? Yes, and antithetical to all activism. And your question is? <laughs> well, is it? No. But I don't want to argue with you. Okay? Because where I'm going, if you are angry or righteous, you will not come. I promise you that. But at some point, activism has to change paradigms. And it, what happens is that the, heart's, the heart is very much an expression of relationship. Okay? Wisdom is very much the expression of, of voidness, of existence, of emptiness. But the heart is a very much an expression of interactive, the interactions within emptiness. Uh, don't ask me to explain that. You just, you just have to hold the paradox. So compassion is activated when it sees something that is horribly wrong, and it's, it, it, there's a passionate response to correct that wrong, so that towards the end of suffering. That's its goal. Okay? It does not do so divisively and antagonistically. It does not do so in a way that forces somebody into the corner where they can only react to your pressures to have them change. I don't know what it looks like, but it does not look like that. It looks more like Gandhi. It looks more like Martin Luther King. It looks more like people who are so deeply enmeshed and embedded in peace in themselves that when you're in their company, you are actually in dialogue, not in protection, because their presence does not throw you into a, an argument. And that's what I think we need to have in order to have true growth and movement in all areas of discord. So how do I do that when I'm not fully awake? You do it with whatever best means are available to you in whatever limited way of love that you can bring and approach to the subject that you're dealing with now. You do not have to wait until you're fully realized to get involved in climate change, and I hope you do get involved. But you can also apply what you do know about love and what you do know about the sense of self and other. And you, what you do know about what the Buddha said was anger only uh, increases from an angry, angry response. And it never settles itself out through individuation and argument. Okay? I don't know what that looks like, but let's just see. Let's just see how this looks in different, in different tones in different ways. Maybe mediation. I don't know. I don't know. It looks well, the way it looks, but it doesn't look broken. Half the world, more than half the world, even more than half the United States does not buy into this thing. You're not going to scold them into going along. They're just going to get, their positions are just going to be more and more entrenched, especially as the dynamics of it start becoming more obvious. There's got to be another way we handle this thing because the species is at risk. That's why I say maybe it's the very incentive for all of us to change paradigms together. Certain thoughts about my meditative.
Baptist and Buddhism in general. They have expanded. I notice when some people leave, they pay homage to the statue of Buddha. You all do, and some people like myself don't. I'm starting to feel I'd like to do that, but I'm not sure what you're actually thinking and saying. Are you looking at a, uh, uh, a symbol and hopefully not an idol? Uh, so. No, I get the question. So why do we bow to the Buddha, basically? Okay, um, we are following a teaching that came from somewhere. And the history books tell us it came from the Buddha. I deeply, deeply appreciate that teaching. I see that there's something that says, you know, that that has a that has me elevating my potential and lifelong expectations about myself. I see that there is something that's coming out of me that I would have missed completely had it not been for this teaching in my life. I am deeply appreciative of that. This is my way of saying, you know, thanks. This is my way of that. Okay, so when we are formed consciousness, which most of us are in the room, where form holds the meaning and purpose of our life, the forms of our life, the expressions of our life, our house, our kids, our, all of that, when we are formed consciousness, which is what we are, content consciousness, then we are very far from the sacred. We're not very close. So what we do is we present, we have proximities of sacred, sacred, of the sacredness, like Buddhist statues, like crosses, like relics and, and that different spiritual traditions. It reminds us that there's something in us that is sacred, even though we might not be feeling it. So when we bow, we are acknowledging that there is something in us, even though it may not be active in us, may not be a presently... Uh, presenting itself in that moment, it's still there. And so that's another reason to bow. And as one begins to just experience the beauties of practice, I think a bow, which is an act of humility, it's like, (laughs) it's also an act of togetherness. I can't do this alone. So it's an act of unity. It's an act of humility. It's also beautiful. It's just a beautiful way of meeting, isn't it? It's not very different. (laughs) (laughs) And so when the sitting's over, we acknowledge each other. It's like we're all in this together. So that's why we do it. You see, it's heartfelt. Now, some people have had, you know, a strong upbringing in certain types of Christianity or other, where they've been forced to ritualize and don't want any part of that. And that's fine. We don't even suggest it. If you like to do it because it helps your heart, it gives you an experience of intimacy and 
more completion within the practice, then fine. If it doesn't, that's fine too. It's very important. Yes, sir. Something you said a couple of nights ago continues to resonate in me. You were speaking about the mind's inability to lead the way out. It was in reference to boredom. And the way out was to come down and to activate the heart. And I wonder if you could say some more about that. Well, I've written two books on it. <laughs> so I'm not sure. Uh, I'll say some, a little bit on uh, the limitations of the mind and uh, the counterbalance of the heart to the mind's strategies. You know, the, the mind, as we uh, use it up, is a, is a, um, a, it's a machine that's very functional. You know, it has a, it uh, is at its own self-service. It's built around survival in all different fun functions. It puts food on your plate, you know, and it also puts you under a protective environment and defense, defensiveness. And it changes the nature of perception so that I see from a distortion or a warped perception, much like sunlight piercing water, it's refracted away, so too when perception goes through the mind, it's refracted into a sense of self and other. That's a refraction of perception. And so, but we take that as the truth because that's the way we look. We look through the mind. Okay, so as we begin to tire from that way of seeing and from that way of treating ourselves, because we also see ourselves as other and try to whip ourselves into shape. When we tire from that, we often try to use the same strategies that got us into that fix to get us out of it. Right? We try to judge ourselves out of it. We try to condemn. We try to force ourselves out of it with will. We try to, we try to use all the things like self-empowerment issues and will and volition because that's all we've known. That's the only thing we have. And it doesn't work very well. In fact, it creates more tension, not less. And so when we get a sense that we're creating more tension in our practice, in our life, through the methods we're employing, if we're sensible, rather than think there's something, there's two ways you can go. One is, and most people go this way, there's something wrong with me and how I'm practicing, and I'm just not trying hard enough, and I just need more practice in order to do it. That's one logic. Another one says, wait a second. See, I'm bleeding at the nostrils here. This is not working. This is the way I went. Now, I'm, I can't rely on teachers or because they're all giving me their story. I need to know what's going on here. Why is this not working for me? It's supposed to be. I've done it for years. And then you go back and you start really looking at the fundamentals of what you were taught and how in alignment with the goal of love those fundamentals are. And what you realize is if you apply any means except the means of the end of love, if say love is your final fruition, 
if you apply any other means than the means of love to get to love, it's going to work against that direction. It's going to be counterintuitive, and it's going to work against that direction. So then you start saying, okay, I got a line to, I see this now. Okay, so when I'm angry, I hold that in a very different way. I hold that. What's holding it? It becomes more important than what it is. What it is is anger. What's holding it? You see, curiosity, interest, warmth. Those are invite those invite you in. Those are connected. Those are aspects of love. So then you can start getting a sense, of, oh I see. Curiosity. Interest, investigation, inquiry, those are attributes that dissolve the, the, the formation of what just occurred, and nothing else will. My anger against anger, my upsetness with my anger, my irritation with my anger, boisters the anger. And I just keep throwing logs on the fire, hoping it goes out. I said, it doesn't work. So let me let it burn itself out. So I will hold it, I will hold it with patience, another attribute of love. And it will start burning itself out. It will start burning itself out. And it doesn't take very long because we're no longer fueling it with our judgment. I'm angry again. My father was angry. Here it goes again. For the longest time, the teaching for me was be aware of your anger. No, I'll say be aware of your judgment. Be aware of your judgment. Okay, I'll be aware of my judgment. Judging, 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 judging. And then there was a little moment when it wasn't. And then judging, 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 judging. <laughs> and and that was all I was ever told. I said, okay, no, that's not good enough. Nothing's happening to it. It still, it still is uh, in my face as it ever was. Okay, so what is behind the judgment? And I saw that mostly what was behind the judgment was a sense of self-inadequacy. And the reason I was judging is because at the, at the moment that was being initiated, the judgment was being initiated, so was the was the uh, self-inadequacy. And so I was putting somebody down to raise myself up. And the moment I was judging, I was feeling inadequate, and that's what the teeter-totter of that approach was. So I'd have relief of my inadequacy by putting somebody else down. I said, well, that's no good. This is me, not some teacher telling me this. So that doesn't work. What if I went to my inadequacy? What's that about? Now... In the moment of judgment, I'm not looking out at the object that I'm judging. I'm looking in at what's motivating the judgment to begin with. And the pain is there. It's, a, it's tricky to feel the pain instead of confirming the judgment. It's tricky. It takes some time to do that. For me, it took. Okay, I feel it. Now, I don't care about the judgment. I, feel about, I care about the inadequacy, you see. And you let that burn itself out through... I'm willing to look at this. I want to see what it's all about. 
And a lot of us self-assumptions begin to burn themselves away through seeing how we try to compensate for those behaviors, those, those beliefs, through our actions like judgment. And if you just look at what our actions try to confirm in ourselves, you'll see, often see, almost always see, a pain body associated with that action. And we try to get through this without ever touching the pain. You know, it's like a pinball machine. I hope it doesn't hit any of those little... Well, I'm sorry, it's going to hit them. You know, that's just the way it goes. And so you have to clear it all out. You have to go everywhere in this thing. There's no difference between the psychological understanding and there is spiritual, because it's all spiritual. It's all, it's all spiritual. It's all sacred. It's just where that level of understanding is in the moment that we call psychological. And then understanding moves to a different level and we call it spiritual. But there's no, it's just where le- understanding is. And the patterns in us determine the level of understanding like a self-assumptions, we are at the psychological level. We have, we have arrested our development at the psychological level because we're unwilling to look at it or even see it through to the next level, which is its own emptiness. And as long as we perfect, protect it from that inward awareness and we keep acting it out, we are certifying its truth. And you you expect to somehow get around that at some kind of illuminating point in time? No, you're not. Enlightenment does not solve the problem. It gives you the problem. It exposes the problem. You say, well, God, okay, here I go. Now I've got to do that. Off we go. The problem solution is in how we receive the problem. Never forget that. If you receive the problem with love, you are moving it to a different, different dimension, a different level. If you receive the problem with story, you put it back into the story. And now the problem is there with another explanation. But it's the same problem. Now it's my mother did it to me. The problem doesn't go away by further expanding the story, which is what most therapists, psychological therapy does. It gives you some relief, perhaps, in thinking that it's not all my fault. It was my mother who did it. But it's only temporary because the problem is still there. We haven't been willing to move the problem into a different level, but only quietude, only love can do that. Only my willing to hold it, see it and not recycle a new story into it. And then it shows itself for what it is, which is empty. Empty. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? How much substance does a thought contain? How much substance does an emotion contain? Well, put thought and emotion together, you have a story. How much substance does a story contain? Well, we act as if it were the, like the movie on our mind. It's like, oh my God, oh. but it's nothing. It's birds flying through the air. It's nothing. It's not even birds flying through. It's just sky riding.
So you, you see, you want to be free or well-adjusted. Nothing wrong with being well-adjusted. I'd rather have a neighbor that's well-adjusted than one that's not. But it's not, the, it's not where the Buddha's pointing. Now, if you're going to come to Narayan and I's retreats, you're going to get where the Buddha's pointing. And we'll bring you along through maladjustment. But it really isn't a workshop on self-improvement. We're looking at the nature of what life is. That's what the Buddha was all about. He, what's the nature of reality? What's it really this stuff? What's the substance? It's this stuff that I've been afraid of for so long. I think that's enough for this evening. Thank you. Maybe we can sit for a moment or two. So you see, what do we really want? What do you really want? Now I would put you on your deathbed right now. And you're looking back over your life. Did you give the energy, the time, the conviction and intention to what you really wanted? Or did it slip by so fast that you never quite got around to it? What do you really want? 